Hey, podcast listeners. Today's episode explores the history of one New York State-funded school that was created to provide care for some of New York's citizens facing physical and intellectual disabilities. This is a tragic story of how the abuse, neglect, and known human experimentation would end up being exposed on national television and lead to the foundation of legislation practices providing protections to the rights of persons with disabilities that are still in place today. I'm Amanda, and welcome to New York's Dark Side. so excited that you are listening. Thank you so much. This is our very first episode and I'm excited to bring it to you. For today, I'm bringing you to Staten Island, New York, where I will tell you the story of Willowbrook State School and the urban legend of Cropsey. I'm also going to be releasing the second episode of this podcast today, which ties into this one and covers a tale of the Pied Piper of Staten Island, Andre Rand. Two quick orders of business. I do have to give a shout out to my husband, Jared, for supporting my crazy and introducing me to this story. I also have to give a shout out to my girls, Steph and Nicole, for doing a quick preview listen and encouraging my need to go for this. I had been sitting on the idea for a podcast for a while, and I wasn't really sure where to go with it. Um, So after telling my husband, Jared, I had this idea. He actually put on the Cropsey documentary, and I instantly knew that I had to cover this story. Maybe you've seen the Cropsey documentary and are kind of wondering how they tie together. Trust me, I will definitely get you there. I feel like it's the perfect opening for New York's Dark Side because it encompasses so many elements of what I want this podcast to cover. For this episode, I used a ton of resources for my research. There will be a link in the show notes to my website, which is www.nydarksidepodcast.com. You'll be able to find all the resource materials and some additional information if you want to do some further digging on your own. I do want to give a quick trigger warning that this episode does contain some direct quotes with language that might be considered derogatory. While I don't agree with the terms that were used in the past, I felt it was important to provide direct quotes in the story because it provides important context to the episode and the viewpoints of the era. To start, I want to talk a little bit about Staten Island, because a lot of this I didn't know until I was researching, and I found it so interesting, and I think it's relevant to the story. So even though I have lived in New York State all of my life, I've only been to New York City once, so I actually don't know very much about New York City. New York City is split into five boroughs. Staten Island is the least populated of the five. It's 3.9 miles long and 7.9 miles wide. It's shaped like a triangle and it's the third largest borough. There are three bridges that connect Staten Island to New Jersey and only one, the Verrazano Narrows Bridge that opened in 1964 that connects it to New York. 
According to the Staten Island Historian website, it's often considered the stepchild of the other boroughs and is referred to by some as a dumping ground. This is discussed a bit in the documentary that we're going to talk about later in the episode. There's a couple of reasons why there's this sentiment about Staten Island. Staten Island was home to the Fresh Kills Landfill, which opened in 1948 and operated through 2001. It's where all of the garbage from the city would go. While in full operation, the landfill was getting up to 19,000 tons of garbage a day. And things got really bad. It stunk. It was horrible. And finally, they decided that they needed to back off from dumping all this garbage. For this alone, I can see why Staten Islanders feel like they're kind of the dumping ground. New York City was dumping all of their garbage there for years, but they didn't even have a bridge that connected them to New York State until almost 20 years later. Fresh Kills Landfill has been in the process of becoming a 2,200-acre park for the last couple of decades. The last barge of residential garbage was received there in March of 2001. After the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001, there was a temporary stay on the closure of Fresh Kills to allow for material from the site to be brought to the West Mound. The materials were carefully screened to ensure that all remains and effects were removed from the debris and taken in New York City's medical examiner's office for identification and safekeeping. There's a 48-acre site adjacent to West Mound where all the materials from the World Trade Center now rest. And I'm just gonna pause and point out that this little part about the debris from the World Trade Center has nothing to do with this story, but I found it interesting and I wanted to include it because I didn't know any of that. As a New Yorker and as an American, I remember that day so vividly in my mind. I remember where I was that morning when we found out about the attacks. I remember watching all of the news footage later in the day after I had gotten home from school. And I never thought with everything else going on and everything that we were thinking and fearing and feeling, I never really thought about what happened to all the material from that site after all of that. And now I know just from doing this research. So I wanted to include that because I felt like it was important. Staten Island also became home to Willowbrook, a quote-unquote dumping ground, so to speak, for the children of New York families that had mental and physical disabilities. Near Willowbrook was also the farm colony, which was built as a housing community meant for the socially outcast and impoverished people. It was a poorhouse. It was meant as a way for them to be self-sustaining by growing their own food and doing other things. Seaview Hospital is also in this area, and it's now abandoned, but it was the largest tuberculosis treatment center in the nation. So they were sending the poor there, they were sending the tuberculosis there, the things they didn't want, all of their garbage to Staten Island. It was a dumping ground. And there's so much more that I can go into, including how Staten Island is also a dumping ground for mob kills, but I seriously could and probably will make an episode on some of these other things completely separate from this. For today, I'm going to stop myself before I go down another rabbit hole and we're going to talk about Willowbrook State School. In 1938, New York State authorized the building of a school for, quote, mental defectives, end quote, and a 375-acre site in the Willowbrook District of Staten Island was selected and the school was built. 
But before the school opened, the United States entered World War II in the 1940s, and New York State turned over the site to the U.S. Army for use as a hospital and prisoner of war camp after the construction was completed in 1942. Halloran General Hospital soon became the largest Army hospital in the United States. It was known for orthopedic and reconstructive surgery and a humanistic standard of care. They were doing the damn thing. Halloran had a great reputation. It provided quality care. At its peak, it treated over 2,500 soldiers daily. And at the war's end, Halloran became a veterans hospital. In 1951, Halloran closed and the Army returned the property to New York State for its intended purpose as Willowbrook State School, though there was a brief period of time where the purpose of the property was up in the air. New York State Governor Thomas Dewey ultimately decided that Willowbrook should be used for the care of the thousands of children in the state with mental and physical disabilities, or in his words, quote, the mentally and physically defective and feeble-minded who can never become members of society, end quote, who needed to be cared for with a, quote, high degree of tenderness and affection, end quote. Spoiler alert, that is not at all the story of what happened to the residents at Willowbrook. Maybe that's what the intention was at the inception of the facility, but the reality was to be a far, far cry from a safe and caring residence for those with physical and intellectual disabilities. The fact that there was this sentiment that the children sent to Willowbrook could never be a part of society really sticks with me. And I know it was a sign of the times or whatever, and that I'm looking at this, you know, 52 years later, and I know I wasn't a part of it, but I feel like it's important to shine a light on this statement given all that I've come to learn about Willowbrook and the actual care, or lack thereof, that the residents received. And I'm just going to say this now. And I'll say it again later, I'm in no way putting the blame on the healthcare providers that worked at Willowbrook. As Geraldo Rivera would go on to say later on, they were as much victims as the residents to the system. I'm a nurse. I know there are a multitude, a multitude of factors that can be involved in what happens to people at any facility at any given time. You can have a great organization with a couple of bad employees. You can have great employees and have a bad system. In this case, the system that was put into place for these residents was bad, and that started from the top from the very beginning. I'm also going to say that I am not in any way placing blame on anyone that placed their children in these institutions. From what I've learned about Willowbrook and how these residents came to be there, I know there were a lot of reasons why parents chose to send their children to places like Willowbrook. They were being referred there by doctors, by social workers. You know, they were not a lot of resources being advertised to families to try to keep their children in the home. They were being referred to send them away. However, I do think that the viewpoint from the people who chose to open this institution and therefore would have had a very important impact on the vital parts of running the institution You know, the people in New York State who are responsible for the funding, the policies, the procedures, the regulations, the structure, the staffing, etc., that had a viewpoint that these residents, these citizens of the state were defective and that they needed to be hidden away because they weren't a part of society. 
I think that plays a huge role in what happens to these residents. And I'm going to get off my soapbox and talk a little bit more about Willowbrook. Willowbrook officially opened in October of 1947. Its campus had multiple buildings. They were designed to hold up to 4,000 residents. And at the start, there were 20 mentally disabled patients from upstate New York who came to reside within the walls. By 1955, it had reached full capacity. The truth of Willowbrook would come to light that the residents were often left in constant state of neglect, completely tragic for those who could be considered among the most vulnerable. This was largely due to a lack of funding from the state, which left the buildings and wards understaffed with high ratios of residents per caretaker. This meant that many residents were left with little or no supervision, care, or resources. Many were naked due to the lack of clothing or lack of staff available to redress patients if they stripped themselves. Residents could be found soiled in their own urine or feces, which would often be left smeared on the walls and clothing. It was also not uncommon for residents to be physically or sexually assaulted by other residents or even employees of the facility. And this would go on for far, far longer than it should have before the public became aware of what was going on behind the walls of Willowbrook. But if abuse and neglect were not enough, there were other concerns for the residents of Willowbrook. There were also questionable medical practices due to confirmed human experimentation. Dr. Saul Krugman, a pediatrician and professor at New York University, and Dr. Robert W. McCollum, a virologist and epidemiologist at the Yale School of Medicine, performed studies at Willowbrook on the residents from 1956 to 1971. Hepatitis was an issue for the school, and the school had reached out for assistance in dealing with it. Dr. Saul Krugman would end up being the principal investigator for the hepatitis experiments with the goal of distinguishing between different strains of hepatitis and working on a vaccination. The doctors intentionally, I'm going to say that again, intentionally, gave residents hepatitis by putting the fecal matter from other residents infected with hepatitis and the food and drink served to the uninfected children with the goal of deliberately giving them hepatitis. They were putting the feces in the kids' mashed potatoes and chocolate milk and then feeding it to them. This This just really, really bothers me that this was allowed to happen. I'm shocked. I'm just shocked. The argument for this method was that creating a vaccine outweighed the harm to the children, and the children would end up getting hepatitis anyway just because it was in the environment. So let's just intentionally speed up that process and give them hepatitis faster. So instead of fixing the problem, because they knew hepatitis was a problem and they knew It was because of the unsanitary conditions. Instead of fixing that problem, they took advantage of it and they gave more children a disease on purpose. A ward at Willowbrook was selected for this experiment and parents of the children in this ward did sign informed consent for this. However, the critics of the study felt that the parents were not sufficiently informed that the children would be intentionally infected with hepatitis. Again, by feeding them the feces of other children, and that sometimes the only space available was in the hepatitis ward, and parents were unduly influenced to consent because there were long waits and crowding issues in other wards of the schools. So they were kind of forced to 
take this option. They weren't being offered other resources to try to help keep the kids at home. So parents who didn't have resources to care for their children would agree to allow them to be experimented on. Again, probably truly without understanding what was happening. And in one of the articles I read on this, a mother was interviewed whose child was placed in the experimental ward. And she admitted she did agree to it. And I'm purposely going to leave her name out of this podcast. In her interview, she said she agreed to the experimentation to get what she thought would be help for her daughter. She was struggling to take care of her at home, and she would later report that when she questioned why the experiments were being done on children rather than on primates, it was because conducting the human experimentation was less expensive. And I know, I know this is just her statement, but again, I think it's important to share because these were such different times compared to now. And there were not the same type of laws and guidelines and regulations around human experimentation as there are now. And a lot of that is because of the Willowbrook case, because this is wrong. This is wrong. The experiments were publicized in the medical community regularly, and they were often criticized by the medical community for their unethical nature. But the doctors did find that a form of hepatitis could be blocked using gamma globulin, and this turned some of the critics into supporters of the doctors. New York State Senator Seymour R. Taylor, who had spoken out about the ethical issues of the experiment in the 1960s, would actually later say in 1971 that he felt like the research had been properly performed. In 1965, Senator Robert Kennedy would shine the light publicly on Willowbrook and other state institutions after he made unannounced tours of multiple facilities in the state, and he began to speak out about the systematic breakdown of mental hygiene care. He was inspired by the lobotomy of his sister Rosemary, which had been done in the 1940s. Kennedy would go on to say to media after visiting Willowbrook that the institution, quote, bordered on a snake pit, end quote, and that the individuals in the overcrowded facility were, quote, living in dirt and filth, their clothing in rags, and rooms less comfortable and cheerful than the cages in which we put animals in the zoo, end quote. Red flag, red flag, red flag. This bothers me because nothing was really done to change this for several more years. New York State had put in a five-year improvement plan after Robert Kennedy's visit, but it didn't stick and things reverted right back to the way they were. From 1966 to 1968, a man named Andre Rand, using the last name Bruchette, would work at Willowbrook as a custodian, orderly, and physical therapy aide. Remember that name because we're going to come back to Mr. Andre Rand. Later, in 1969, Willowbrook reached his peak of 6,200 residents, far surpassing the original 4,000 that it was built to hold. Seven years after Robert Kennedy spoke publicly about the need to do better with these institutions, the world would be shocked and outraged by an expose bringing them inside the walls of Willowbrook and Letchworth Village, another mental institution. Dr. Michael Wilkins, a physician who worked at Willowbrook, had been advocating to the parents of residents within his wards to demand better care and conditions for the residents within. He was let go from his position and reached out to Geraldo Rivera and a print journalist named Jane Curtin and in February of 1972, Geraldo Rivera, with help from Jane Curtin, would release an expose on Willowbrook titled, Willowbrook, The Last Great Disgrace, 
The expose is on YouTube if you're interested in watching the full video, and I highly recommend that you do. It's just crazy, and I've linked it. I'm going to highlight some of it in this episode. Rivera paid a visit to Willowbrook, entering Building 6 on the campus without authorization or notification to the institution that he was coming, and he came with a videographer. They were presented with horrifying scenes of residents wandering around, naked and unattended, some just lying or sitting in their own urine or feces. He described the smell of the wards, stating that they, quote, smelled of filth, they smelled of disease, and they smelled of death, end quote. I, again, I'm a nurse. The smell of the hospital is sometimes not great. You know what I'm talking about? Like the smell of cleaning supplies that they use there. Sometimes we get the smell of other things like, you know, feces, wounds, GI bleed, that type of thing. But I can't imagine what this would have smelled like just based on the description that they give. And I can't imagine one of my loved ones living in this institution. And the reason why, you know, part of the reason I don't think I really touched on it earlier, that more parents weren't, you know, advocating for better conditions and things like that was because they weren't allowed into the facility to see what their loved ones were actually living in. They couldn't see all of this stuff that was going on inside the walls because when they came to visit, they visited outside on the grounds. They weren't allowed to go in and see their loved one's rooms. They couldn't see the common areas. They couldn't see any of that. So when they came for visits, their loved ones would be dressed and clean and not actually what was happening the other 99% of the time. So that's what really had Dr. Wilkins pushing for changes in the wards and pushing for the parents to advocate for better things because he knew what was going on inside. And that's what really led him to advocate for change and ended up getting him fired and reaching out to Geraldo Rivera because he's a badass. He wanted things to change. Dr. Wilkins was interviewed for the expose and he spoke about the incidents of hepatitis and the residents getting parasites and struggling with pneumonia. Now, notably for me anyway, they didn't specifically mention the hepatitis experiments that were being done on the wards. I do know they were published again in medical journals from what I've seen, but I don't think it ever really got publicized to the mainstream news media. So two days after Geraldo Rivera's unauthorized visit, Rivera was invited back for an actual authorized visit, and this time he found that the children were dressed, they were well attended, there were staff around, and everything's looking so much better. So to see if this was a sustained change, he actually went back again for another unauthorized visit through a back door a couple of days later and found the same conditions as his first visit. Poorly attended residents, naked and wandering, left to sit in their own waste for hours and hours. Some of the facts that they presented in this expose was that 60% of the residents were not toilet trained and 54% of the residents were unable to feed themselves. Due to the lack of staff, they were often hurrying to feed the residents and instead of taking proper time to feed them a meal like, you know, 20 to 30 minutes, they were taking about two to three minutes per resident to shove food in their mouths and they would just hurry them along. 
And this caused a lot of the residents to aspirate and led to increased rates of pneumonia that they were seeing. And some of the residents, you know, ended up dying from this. All of the residents were treated in the same manner, regardless of their differing mental or physical ability. And residents were often misdiagnosed with what was truly wrong with them. They weren't given a chance to see what the residents could actually do, and they didn't work with them to see how they could do better. Dr. Wilkins said that New York State provided the bare minimum for the residents. There was no education structure set up, so residents were often left with nothing to do for hours and hours and hours. They would just wander around, stare at walls, lie on the floor. That was their life. They didn't know what the children were capable of because they didn't attempt to do anything with them. And although Willowbrook was named a school and funded through the state, without that education structure within the organization, sometimes groups of children would have up to two hours of education time a day, but there was no structure to it, not even in the basics of self-care and hygiene, let alone academics. This is further highlighted in the expose with a resident of Willowbrook named Bernard Caraballo. At the time of the interview, he had been there for 18 years. Bernard was born in 1950, and he was placed in Willowbrook by his mother at the advice of doctors at the age of three, after he was diagnosed as being developmentally disabled. He was one of the children that was misdiagnosed. He actually had cerebral palsy. In the interview with Geraldo, Bernard said he only received schooling and physical therapy for five of the years that he lived in Willowbrook. Even though he wanted to continue, he aged out according to the school. He was overaged and it just stopped. They just stopped giving him education and that's so fucking tragic, you know? Here's a kid who wanted to learn. Bernard is a success story, though. He was taken out of Willowbrook with the help of Dr. Wilkins when he was 21. He would actually go on to become an advocate, and he founded the Self-Advocacy Association of New York State in 1986. Not all of the residents had this kind of success story, and I'm so glad we appear to have learned from this, but it's just so sad to see that the futures of all of these children, remember, there were upwards of 6,200 children that were impacted by this, would just be fundamentally changed and shifted because of what they experienced here. Imagine what they could have become if we had the proper tools and resources to give them a better chance. So part of the issue with the funding was that New York State went through a period of entrenchment, which led to a hiring freeze, and because of this, Willowbrook lost 600 employees through attrition. The budget from the Department of Mental Hygiene dropped from $630 million to $600 million and then was cut even further by Governor Rockefeller to $580 million, which caused 200 more employees to be lost, making the staffing situation much worse for the residents and changing the ratios, which had a goal of being four patients to one staff member, to 30 to 40 to 50 to one. And I just want to say again, I'm not placing blame on the staff of Willowbrook, They were set up for failure by the system that didn't give them the resources and funding to truly do right and provide safe quality care to the residents. One person cannot take care of 30 or 40 or 50 residents. They just can't. It's not possible. Even if those residents were completely alert, oriented, and very functional, capable people, one person cannot take total responsibility and care for that many people. 
So another facility that Rivera went to was Letchworth Village in Rockland County, and he visited with Congressman Mario Biaggi for another official visit. They were invited there, and Rivera, knowing what he knew after visiting Willowbrook, arrived a couple of hours prior to the scheduled visit time because he wanted an actual, accurate view behind the walls. And when he got there, the staff were still trying to prepare for the visit. They were cleaning, they were bringing in racks of clothes to try to get the residents dressed. And even so, when the time came for the official visit, they still weren't ready. And the staff explained to Rivera and Representative Biagi that they didn't have enough clothes. Like, they physically did not have enough clothes for all the residents. And on top of that, they didn't have the staff for the patients to keep them dressed. So that's why many of the children for this visit were walking around naked. They had four to five staff members for 100 plus residents. They were set up to fail. Representative Biagi complimented the beauty of the buildings, but stated that Letchworth was the worst institution he had ever visited in his life. He had visited hospitals, he had visited prisons, but Letchworth Village was the worst institution he had ever visited in his life. Regulations for funding required 80 square feet per person, but they were so understaffed that they were functioning in 35 square feet per person. Letchworth had empty buildings, they had empty wards, but because they couldn't afford the staff to put patients there, they were all crowded into one area. There were like cribs with multiple children in the cribs. This is very, very sad, just sad, and it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way, but the people that were in charge of making sure it wasn't like this didn't care. They didn't care, and they kept cutting the funding. Another sad fact about Letchworth in the expose was that there were 300 able-bodied residents that could go out and gain employment outside the facility, but they weren't allowed to, and instead, they were being used to help fill the staffing gap at the facility, and they were paid $2 a day, which was less than they would have made if they had been able to go out and find employment, but again, they weren't allowed to because they needed them to staff the facility. It's crazy, and it should not have happened. One thing I think Geraldo Rivera did very well with his expose is he also showed what we could have done better for these residents and how it should have been. Geraldo Rivera went and he visited Children's Hospital in Los Angeles to show how completely different the mental hygiene program was in California compared to New York. California's program focused on the community resources after a European expert on mental development issues visited And he actually called out the state for the conditions in which their residents were living. And at the time, it was very similar to New York State. That European expert said, quote, my God, you don't care for your mentally retarded as well as we care for our cattle, end quote. So instead of having institutions, they have centers with different services offering different resources such as shelters and daycare and other things that people need to be able to keep their children in their home how it should be. Very, very different from New York. Instead of telling them that we need to send them away to institutions like Willowbrook, they help keep them at home and they help provide them with what they need to care for them, which is what we should have done. They also provided education and schooling and highlighting it as being as much of a right for these children as it is for, quote, normal, end quote, children. And for older children and older adults, they focused on employment opportunities with different workshops, which allowed them to be able to go find employment and earn wages and engage in society instead of being hidden away. 
They didn't hide them away. They found them opportunities. They focused on prevention through testing and genetic consulting and education to the parents to try to help all of them. Just a very much more holistic approach than New York State. On March 17th, 1972, 50 years ago on the day that I launched this episode, Dr. William Bronston, he was another doctor at Willowbrook that was let go for advocating to parents and trying to improve conditions. He was let go and he helped lead a group of parents when they filed a class action lawsuit against Willowbrook. The lawsuit alleged that the constitutional rights of the residents were violated due to confinement of residents, sometimes to beds or chairs or in solitude, due to the overcrowding conditions, due to the failure to provide education, habilitation, and evaluations of residents because they weren't doing any of those things to see how the residents were progressing. They were not providing adequate services for speech, occupational, or physical therapy for their residents. They were not providing adequate clothing, meals, and facilities, including toilet facilities. Like the toilet facilities were terrible. They didn't even have toothbrushes. Failure to provide protection from theft, assault, or injury. Lack of compensation for work performed by the residents. Inadequate medical facilities, the understaffing and lack of competent medical staff and professional staff. Lack of privacy, again, they're walking around naked. And failure to release residents eligible for release. They weren't even releasing residents who were able to go back to the community. This is all very crazy. The plaintiffs in the lawsuit allege that the conditions violated the constitutional right to treatment under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment and that their denial of a public education of the residents violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment as well. In April of 1973, U.S. District Court Judge Orrin G. Judd rejected the plaintiff's argument that the Due Process Clause guaranteed a right to treatment and that the denial of public education violated the Equal Protection Clause. He did not agree. However, he did find that the conditions in Willowbrook violated the constitutional rights of persons living in state custodial institutions to be protected from harm. So according to Judge Judd, the plaintiff's constitutional right to protection from harm meant that the residents of Willowbrook were entitled to, quote, at least the same living conditions as prisoners, end quote. He felt they weren't even getting the same type of treatment as prisoners in jails for crimes. Judge Judd granted much of the requested injunctive relief, including prohibiting the use of seclusion and restraints. He increased medical and therapeutic and recreational staffing. He required maintenance and required regular progress reports on the residents to their parents. And with this injunctive order in place, the case proceeded to trial on October 1st, 1974, with the parties continuing negotiations for months afterward. The case was settled on April 30th, 1975, when Judge Judd signed the Willowbrook Consent Decree. This consent decree outlines specific procedures and instructions for treatment of residents, covering issues such as resident living, the environment, programming, and evaluation, hiring of personnel, education, recreation, food and nutrition, dental and medical treatments, therapy services, and the proper use of restraints, conditions for residents to provide labor in the facility, and conditions for research and experimental treatment. 
Significantly, the consent judgment also declared the primary goal of the institution and the New York State Department of Mental Hygiene to ready each resident for life in the community at large. A far, far cry from where we started with this whole story, where, you know, we needed to hide them away because they were never meant to be a part of society. Now we're going to prepare them for life in the community. We want to get them back out into the community. And it called for the placement of Willowbrook residents in less restrictive settings. So their goal was to try to get them to group homes, back home with their families, or in other places outside of institutions like Willowbrook. The consent decree set a goal of reducing the number of residents living at Willowbrook to no more than 250 by 1981, which didn't really happen because, let's be real here, the state does not do anything quickly. So while this is a very tragic story for the residents of Willowbrook and other state institutions that functioned in this manner, it did lead to some good things. You know, we learned from our mistakes and I want to highlight some of those things as well. The political reaction from the expose and the lawsuit led to the enactment of legislation to protect the rights of our citizens. So one of those protections was the protection and advocacy system in the Developmental Disabilities Assistance Bill and Bill of Rights of 1975. And the goal of the protection and advocacy system is for ongoing protection and advocacy for the personal and civil rights of individuals with developmental disability. This also created the Education for All Handicapped Children Act. This act required that all public schools accepting federal funds to equally provide access to education for children with physical and mental disabilities. Public schools were then required to evaluate children with disabilities and create an educational plan with parent input that would ensure they were getting as close an education experience as possible to non-disabled students. This is important. Additionally, The Civil Rights of Institutionalized Persons Act was signed in 1980 and intended to protect the rights of people in state or local correctional facilities, nursing homes, mental facilities, and group homes, and institutions for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. All of this should not have had to happen in order for these things to be put into place, but at least some good came out of it. The Developmental Disabilities and Bill of Rights Act and the Civil Rights of Institutionalized Persons Act were the first federal civil rights laws protecting people with disabilities, leading to the enactment of the Americans with Disabilities Act through the ADA. And this story is just so crazy. I really didn't go too far into researching what happened to all the children and adults after they were taken out of Willowbrook, but I did come across one thing I wanted to share because this bothered me. Because it didn't just stop with Willowbrook, okay? It didn't just stop with Willowbrook, and the sentiment is still there. A worker named Barbara Blum was the lead of the Metropolitan Placement Unit, and this was the agency that was in charge with finding residents' homes and hostels and other places as Willowbrook was preparing to shut down. So she was out trying to find placement in communities, and she would actually be assaulted on the street by people. People would pelt her with eggs, and one time she ended up with a broken nose because people did not want the residents of Willowbrook coming to live in their communities. And she was reportedly reviled in some places where she was trying to find placement. This is so, like, this makes me so angry that there are people out there. These are residents. These are citizens. They are as much part of our community as everybody else, and this poor woman is just trying to find the safe place to live. And instead of welcoming her and welcoming the residents into their community, they're pelting her with eggs and breaking her nose. 
do better. Do better, people. In 1983, New York State announced plans to close Willowbrook completely. It had been renamed the Staten Island Developmental Center. The last residents would leave the grounds on September 17, 1987. Today, the campus of Willowbrook still belongs to the state of New York. And while parts of the campus remain abandoned, home to Staten Island's unhoused people, other parts of it have become part of the campus for the College of Staten Island. And this is where the next part of the tale is going to begin. This is what sparked my interest into researching Willowbrook and why I wanted to give that background on the site before covering Andre Rand. As I mentioned in the beginning, I was talking with my husband about my idea of wanting to cover dark history as a portion of my podcast. And he popped on a documentary called Cropsy. And as soon as I saw it, I knew this is what I wanted to do for my first couple of episodes. The film was released in 2009 by Staten Island filmmakers Joshua Zeman and Barbara Brancasio. They grew up with the urban legend of an escaped mental patient who lived in the tunnels beneath Willowbrook. And he would come out at night and snatch little children and drag them back to the grounds. Sometimes he had a hook for a hand. Sometimes he carried a bloody axe. The film covers the true crime story of Andre Rand, and I mentioned this earlier. He was a man who worked for a period of time at Willowbrook. He drifted around Staten Island. In 1987, a 12-year-old girl with Down syndrome went missing. At the time, Andre Rand lived on the grounds of Willowbrook, and he had a camp not far from where the girl's body would ultimately be found a few weeks later. We'll be covering the story of Andre Rand in the second episode of this podcast, We've hit well over 40 minutes, and I'm so very excited. I found a lot of things, so don't fret. The second episode is being released today as well, and it's available now, so you can go listen to it right now. You can just keep listening to me. Anyway, thanks for listening. I hope you come back for more. Please don't forget to check out my website. The link is posted in the episode notes for more. Don't forget to follow the show so that you get updates on when new episodes drop. You can also check out any of our social medias. I am on Facebook through the New York's Dark Side Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram at nydarksidepod. You can send me an email at nydarksidepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening and I hope you stay curious.